ABF Creative. ABF Many define athlete success by the number of MVPs earned, all-star appearances, touchdowns scored, baskets made, or championships won. But the real wins occur off the field. When we watch and hear our sports stars discuss the topics that matter in the pursuit of equality and social justice, these voices should be heard, celebrated, and most importantly, shared. These are the real sports heroes. Time to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what are we doing to create change? They're just so happy to see a black man who will stand up and jeopardize every court he's got to tell the truth. I'm seeing things happen to people that don't have a voice, people that don't have a platform to talk and have their voices heard and affect change. We will definitely not shut up and dribble. I would definitely not do that. Being an NBA player don't exclude me from no conversation at all. First and foremost, I'm a black man and I'm a member of this community. Go after your dreams. You don't allow anything to take you away from your dreams. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Jawad Williams, a professional basketball player, father, and author. Jawad's accomplishments go far beyond the court. Here's my conversation with Jawad Williams. I'm Kira Luck. I'm Jawad Williams, and you're listening to Real Sports Heroes. First off, I always want to thank Jawad for entertaining my antics because this is not the first, the second, nor the third, or even the fourth time that I've had the pleasure to interview you. And as always, I'm extremely appreciative of your time because I know you're extremely busy because you're not just an athlete. You have many different ventures that that you do and are exceeding at. So thank you for this time for joining us on my new podcast, Real Sports Heroes. Um, well, first of all, congratulations to you and uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Of course. So um, first things first, everyone knows you're an athlete. I kind of want to get to that part later. I kind of want to get into the things that people are getting to know about you. One of the first things, of course, that I've always noticed about you is how much you care about your family, how they're always at the forefront of everything you do. And with that birth, something incredible, a children's book series based on your two cute kids um, out of four, uh, Nyla and Nash, with their adventures that are surrounding your travels as an athlete. What made you want to dive outside of basketball into something else, something completely different like writing? Well, we always thought that uh, reading to our kids was very important ever since they were born. Uh, even when they were in the, in the womb, we read to our children a lot. And I figured I could write a children's book. I read so many. I got the formula down packed and I was like, let me just go ahead and try my hand at writing. And so I came up with a couple rough drafts and sent them out to people who enjoyed them and uh, turned their lives into books. Just something for them to look back on when they grow older and look back and say, look, our dad did this for us. Yeah, it's just another way to highlight their travels. You don't see too many kids out traveling the world, especially black kids. And I wanted to make sure uh, I put that out on the forefront. Now, when your kids do grow up, what is the one thing outside of, you know, this is what my dad did for us at a young age, because this isn't just about books. You know, you're building a legacy, you're building a business for them so that when they do get older, they have much more than just being an author to their name. They have a whole fleet of things attached to it. What is the one thing that you want them to look at whenever they see Nyla and Nash takes the world when they're like 25, 26? I just want them to under, I always raise them to be children of understanding. 
boys and girls of understanding because they've been in tough situations where, you, you know, we literally taking them around the world, dropping them off and they have to adjust. And uh, that's a part of life. So one thing I think that they understand now is how they have to adjust and learn to respect others, respect other cultures. It just makes for an easier life for everyone. Now, as a dad, how do you help them adjust? Because I can only imagine being seven, eight years old, traveling the world, and not only are you experiencing uh, different places, but different cultures, different languages, different food. Like, I love French fries, so I can't imagine what it's like to go to Paris or Tokyo and experience French fries in a whole new country. So as a dad, how do you adapt your family to these new adventures? Well, I always go first and fill out the, fill out the situation find some of the things that we're used to from the States, find those things to make sure when they, as soon as they come, they're comfortable. And then I slowly try to integrate them into, you know, my the new world, you know, especially when we're in Paris, you know, the food is a little different. Same thing with Tokyo. Things are a little different. So I have to slowly walk them into it and then they begin to pick it up and enjoy it. And then when the kids go off to school, they're pretty much on their own. You know, they figure it out. Kids are easy. You know, they love to play with each other. And once they figure that part out, they kind of just follow suit with everyone else. Now, how have they kind of grown as authors? Because they're not just on a book. They're active in the process of selling these books and going to different schools and reading to the kids. And I know like you had a live one day where um, your daughter was, you know, reading a bedtime story, you know, of her book. So how have they grown as not just kids, but, you know, authors? Well, they've become entrepreneurs. They both have an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, especially Nyla, the oldest. She started her own dog walking business within the neighborhood and so they, they have entrepreneurial spirit. I try to teach them about ownership, which is very important. Nyla Nash is not just a book series, it's actually a company and uh, they own the company. So I let them do what they need to do. They get paid and it's something they can you know live off of for the rest of their lives. Now, you have twins, so how do you explain or, you know, are you going to do something for your twins as well? Because I can only imagine being, you know, younger and then when I get older, wondering where the fuzzy is my company at, you know, six, seven years old and uh, what's going to happen. So what, what, if any, kind of plans do you have for your twins and their growth in being entrepreneurs? Uh, my twins, Zane and Zoe, they actually have a book coming out as well. They have a nursery rhyme book coming out that I wrote a... Uh probably four or five months ago. Uh, it's in production right now. It should be out hopefully by the end of summer. So is it under the same umbrella as Nala and Nash or is it going to be yeah. their own? Okay, It's, it's going to be under the same umbrella. It's going to be under the same umbrella. I might have to go back and change the company name. But uh, <laughs> for, the, for right now, it'll be under the same umbrella. Uh, Nyla and Nash will actually make a couple guest appearances in Zane and Zoe's, uh, Zane and Zoe's book. When they, I don't have to answer those questions when they get older. Because right now, they're they looking at the books now and they can point them out. Nyla, Nash. So now I understand that they know who they are on those books. So they need to see themselves as well. Will the nursery rhymes be original? Is it something original to your family? Or, you know, is it your rendition on classics that you've kind of um, updated to kind of fit Zane and Zoe? It's a day in their life. That's all it is. I just took a regular day for them and broke it down into nursery rhymes and different scenes because that's pretty much what it is. You know, every hour is something different with those two. It was easy to document that. Everybody makes a guest appearance, and I think it'll be pretty fun to read. 
Now, you're not just, you know, writing books. You have Strive to Excel that's on your T-shirt right now. Explain to us what Strive to Excel is. Strive to Excel is my nonprofit organization. Uh, We focus on underprivileged communities and helping children reach higher levels of education, whether it be trade school, college, whatever it is they want to be. We do a lot of basketball clinics, a lot of outreach programs. Our basketball clinics, we use our Basketball Plus uh, formula, which is a we look at it as like basketball is just the foundation to bring kids in. And then we give them something else to make sure they leave not only as better basketball players, as better better people as well. Now, why was it important for you to start a nonprofit? Uh, I think it's pretty well documented. I'm, I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, not the Cleveland, Ohio you see when you watch Cavs game either. I'm from down the road, you know. Uh, I'm from a pretty tough area. I take pride in being the person that I needed when I was growing up. With that being said, I feel like I can help a lot of people with my platform, uh, my knowledge, and just my experiences as well. Now explain to me what it means to you to be more than an athlete. What does the term more than an athlete mean to you? I never thought athletes were just athletes, first of all. I always tell people I can walk and chew gum. You know what I mean? Just because I play basketball doesn't mean I can't have other things. There's other things outside of my life. Basketball has been a main piece of my life, but it's not my entire life. So seeing athletes, including myself and others, get out there and do other things outside of basketball and and present it to the world and it be accepted is a great thing. And I hope more guys continue to do the same. Before we jump into your athletic career, is there anything else that we should be looking forward to you off the court coming up? Because I do know you have another Nolan and Nash series coming out. I don't know if you can give us an exclusive, but um, what else can we expect from you going forward? Well, from you, I can do it. Uh, the next <laughs> book will be coming out within the next couple of weeks. It's Nyla and Nash Take Istanbul. We spent the three years in Turkey. We lived in Istanbul and Gaziantep and uh, another city called Izmir. But most of this is, takes place in Istanbul and Gaziantep. There will be a fourth book to the Nyla and Nash series, uh, which I'm working on right now. Told you about the Zane and Zoe book. And when I finish the children's book series, I'll go into my autobiography, which I've already started to outline. Random question. And I'm sure this is more a question for Nyla. Is it something that can grow as Nyla and Nash gets older, their adventures as a teenager? You know, because I'm sure you'll still be playing when you're like 130. Is it something that can grow with them with age? Is that something that you have thought about maybe? It's something that they've already talked about taking over because they've, <laughs> they've, they're different. You know, Nyla's 10 and she already told me when she turns 18, she's moving back to Paris and all this stuff. Wow. I can see Nyla and Nash getting out and traveling the world by themselves. We have friends in different countries, so I'm not too worried about them. So I'm pretty sure they'll take their benches by themselves and, and be able to tell me some new things. While you're writing your autobiography, is there something that you just do not want to miss? Because I didn't even know you're writing an autobiography, and I'm sure it's going to be phenomenal just knowing your story and who you are and the things that made you and your career and the things that you you battled through. Is there something that you want every reader to take away from your story? Just a story of resilience, if anything. You know, there's been a thousand times that the doors have been slammed in my face, and I I just always go back to my aunt telling me one day if one door, if a door closes and another door closes, there's still a window you can go through. I kind of been living my life that way. I always find a way to get it done and I'm not going to let anybody stop me. But I'm pretty sure my autobiography would be pretty interesting to a lot of people. I got some pretty funny stories. I got some sad stories. A lot of people that 
others want to hear about will be mentioned in the story. Nothing negative, but it's just my story. So I'm not worried about anybody like uh, coming at me like, oh, you said this about me. It's my story. You know what I mean? So that's that. Is there one funny story in particular that you're excited to tell? No, not really. I've had so many different <laughs> encounters in my life with different people from different walks of life. So it's not one story that really stands out. But I'm pretty sure everybody will want to hear about my Carolina experience and my Cleveland Cavaliers experience, especially those two, uh, because of some of the people that would be mentioned and featured in those, uh, those times. So who is Jawad Williams? Man, that's a, uh, that's a good question. A man of understanding, first and foremost. Uh, husband, father. I'm always looking for other ways to describe myself besides an athlete, because, you know, that's just something I do. It's not who I am. I don't know. It's just a, a jack of all trades, if anything. Now, going into your athletic experience, you are one of the few athletes that, you know, I've had the pleasure of, you know, calling a mentor. It's more than just your athletic ability, but seeing you as a father, as a husband, and seeing you mentor other people and how proud you are of other people, especially your family, is incredibly encouraging. It looks like you don't have to be a one-trick pony as an athlete. It looks like you can do more to life than just, you know, being a ball player. You can help people from where you're from. Um, you can mentor people who have questions and, you know, don't have the exact answer, but you have the experience to kind of, you know, navigate them a little better. So. Being allowed to kind of witness that in person has been extraordinary. And as an athlete, being on one of my favorite Carolina teams of all time, I think personally, because there hasn't been anything like it yet at UNC. Tell us a little bit about your recruitment experience going into UNC and, you know, how you ended up there. Because, you know, I know you had other options, but I just want to know, like, why did you choose UNC? All the way from Cleveland. Like I've always said, Carolina wasn't my first choice, to be honest. My first choice was uh, to go to Cincinnati and play with Bob Huggins. But at the time, they had a 0% graduation rate. Uh, my parents wasn't going to have it um, because the plan was at least for me to go to school for two years. But at some point finished and them having a 0% graduation rate kind of took them out of the picture. Uh, I actually committed to Maryland, uh, backed out of my commitment after my visit to Carolina. And my visit was just unbelievable. I remember coming on campus and Jackie Manuel was on my visit as well. Walking around campus, we went to a night football game. This is when Ronald Curry and Julius Pepper mm -hmm. were playing. So the hype was real. Once we got there, you know, you walk out on the field, you walk along the track and you got 60,000 fans chanting your name. I said, like, yeah, I think that's where I need to be. So uh, that kind of sealed the deal right there for me. Now, you didn't start off with Coach Williams. Um, you were kind of introduced to him um, a little later in your career. But what made you stay at UNC during that coaching change? Because that's definitely some adversity that not a lot of athletes experience um, during, your, during their tenure in college. The biggest thing is I wanted to win. The, the program wasn't where it should have been under my watch, I believe. Uh, you know, at the freshman year, going 8 and 20, sophomore year, what, 19 and 16 or something like that. Uh, it just wasn't where I wanted to be. I didn't want to just leave after something I kind of helped destroy for the most part. Uh, I wanted to build it back up and make sure I left on top. So I left, build myself a legacy at Carolina basketball. Did you, you can never know these things, but to go out on top, a lot of people say that, but it never really comes to fruition. You literally went out on top. 
how did you kind of manifest that to happen? What were some of the things that you had to do that you knew were going to get you a championship ring? Well, I'm a firm believer in uh, a quote that I once heard said, your mind has to ride before your body does. And uh, so I kind of live by that. Uh, if you go back and watch any interviews that we did before that season, anything speaking about that season, it all said championship or bust. That, that was my mindset. I believe in speaking things into existence. It's one of those things. But once you put it out there, you got to be willing to do the work. And uh, myself and my team was, were very willing to do the work. And we went out there and did it. I think we had any doubts. There were no doubts in my mind that we were going to win it all. How did you guys buy in all as a team? Were there any traditions or little things that you guys did that year that kind of unified you into one? Going into my senior year, which would have been Sean, Ray, you know, their class, David, mm-hmm. their class, their junior year, we all went out to dinner and we talked about going pro. Because everybody, it was a lot of guys that had a chance to leave early. And we all sat down, we said, look, we went to dinner on Franklin Street somewhere and we made an agreement with each other pretty much. Said, look, we win and everybody leave. No man gets left behind. That's what happened. We won and a few people decided to stay, like David, Ray, Sean, Terry. You know, a few guys decided to stay, but everybody else was like, we winning, we getting out of here. Like, we did our job, it's time to move on. But, uh, you know, it worked out for everyone. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that championship was on Sean's birthday. Was there any extra motivation to like, bro, we cannot let this man's birthday <laughs> memory be of us losing to Illinois? Like, did he kind of give some type of speech? Like, bro, please do not let this be a memory on my no, day. No, Sean's birthday wasn't <laughs> wasn't a motivating factor, to be honest. Um, the night before, we actually had a birthday party for Sean in the hallway. Our friends and family invited in the hallway of the hotel. We had, a, we had cake and ice cream. This is the night before the championship game. Uh-huh. So there was no stress on us at all. You know, we didn't, we knew Shine wanted to win, but everyone else wanted to win just as bad. So there was no added incentive for winning for Shine's birthday. So after you win the championship, you go out on top and uh, just tell me, what was your pro career like? I mean, you've had the opportunity to ball with some of the most incredible athletes we will ever see in our, in our lifetime. So what was your experience like in the NBA? And of course, especially, you know, having that time with LeBron James and developing that relationship. My journey as a professional, excuse me, as a professional athlete started a little rocky, you know, bouncing around from country to country. And then finally realizing my dream of playing in the NBA, then to play in the NBA and to play at home is a whole nother ball game. You know, mm-hmm. being able to play in Cleveland in front of my friends and family was amazing. And then on top of that, my teammate, is the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also somebody that I've known since high school. So it was kind of like reconnecting with an old friend and uh, got to go out there and share the court with him. And, and it, it was just, it was weird because I kind of, I knew how good he was, but I didn't know how good other people thought he was. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a different dynamic once you actually get around him and have to deal with his fans, you know, in, in that light. It's a little different. But it was a great, it was a blessing. Um, before my grandmother passed, she got to see me. She got to see me play. Um, she hadn't seen me play probably since sixth grade. And then to finally make it to the NBA, and then she surprised me. It came to the game where I scored my first NBA basket. So that was pretty special. You're in, well, you just finished year 16. Um, that is a feat that 
you know, not a lot of people can imagine. Being in this game for 16 years, what are some of the differences you've experienced between being overseas and playing at home? You're out of your comfort zone, first of all, overseas. Uh, it's a little different. You know, the, the game is a little different. Basketball in general is different when you're playing abroad. And then you have to throw in that aspect of being abroad and with a family and everything. You know, off the court is also an issue. Uh, a great issue for me because I don't have any problems adjusting and my family doesn't either. But it's been great. I can't complain at all. You know, 16 years is, is special. I got two more at least. So we'll see what happens. I want to bring your wife into this because they're unsung heroes when it comes to athletes because they really hold it down whenever, you know, you're away um, outside the country or at away games. Um, how important has it been for you to have your wife with you to kind of be that stability that you need and kind of also, you know, believe in your dreams? Because there are people out there who marry people who just don't believe in them at all and it reflects in their work. So how important has it been for you to kind of marry someone who genuinely loves you and genuinely supports your dreams? Uh, she's been very important. She's been my backbone throughout this entire process because going back to when we started dating in uh, 2002, you know, we would talk as friends and everything. And then it turned into boyfriend, girlfriend. But I always told her I was going to play this game until I turned 40 because I would see so many guys put out there in the universe that, oh, I'm going to retire at 30 and 31. And I was like, you only get to do this one time. I'm playing until I can't play anymore. But I set a time frame out of respect for her to be 40. And she's been supportive for me and the family and herself the entire time. Uh, there hasn't been any arguments where I needed to come home or I needed to do something. Uh, I can't go to the gym today. You know, I always find time. And she always makes sure I had what I need when I come home, you know, or when I have to leave. She makes sure I, has every, I have everything I need, as well as the kids. Um, but she's that voice behind the bench that overrides everything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. She really needs me and I have to shut it down for her. I will. It's only a couple people that can make that call, and uh, she's one of them. What type of advice do you have for um, up-and-coming athletes who want to get to even a year five? You're at year 16. You know, how can they have that type of longevity? It starts with a uh, mindset first. Uh, you have to set your mind on what you want to do and then work at it. The work ethic part has to really be there. You know, a lot of guys say they want to do something, but they don't put in the work. You can't have uh, million dollar dreams with a minimum wage work uh, with a minimum wage work ethic. It just doesn't work that way. I pride myself on my work ethic. Uh, you know, my Carolina guys, the coaching staff now, and Coach Williams, they all know nobody has probably put in more man hours in the Smith Center than myself. You know, whether it be from 11 to 2 o'clock in the morning or whether it be from 5 in the morning to 6.30 in the morning, they know that you can find me in the Smith Center, especially during my offseason. So for guys who want to continue to play this game and make a great living for themselves, you have to put in the work. Now, I heard your previous interview with Inside Carolina where you said that you were um, a little shocked about Coach Williams retiring, but your second instinct was to think of, okay, who's the next man up? You know, what of your 
if any, I don't think you can even have any expectations of Coach Davis, but um, what would you like to see for this program going forward? You know, are there any little small details that you want to see? Are there any players that you want to see emerge and kind of take over that leadership role? And are you excited about the uncertainty? Because we literally know nothing about UNC right now, um, you know, what the makeup is going to look like. So, yeah, I gave you like 62 questions in one. So I got you. I got you. <laughs> but, uh, I don't like the uncertainty part of it, but I am looking forward to a new style of play. Uh, the last few years, there's been tradi- two traditional bigs on the court, and that style is not dated, but it's hard to play that way. Um, especially when you have slashing guards and slashing players like Caleb Love and, and Leaky Black on the wing, guys who need to get into the paint, too big kind of crop, crowds that area up. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to them being more perimeter-oriented for some guys. I like the additions of uh, Justin McCoy and Brady Manick. I've seen both of those guys play recently uh, at the gym, you know, me being in there working out and being able to see them play. And I'm very impressed with both of them. Uh, I think they'll really help. And it's also getting back to that stretch four type ball game that we had when I played and then they, who came after me, uh, Luke May. You know, those it shows when you have somebody that's a big who can step away from the basket and open it up for everyone else. Uh, it helps a lot. So I'm looking forward to it. I think Coach Davis should do a great job. He has a great staff around him. I'm very excited to see Jackie on that staff. Sean, of course, but, you know, he's been there for a while, but especially Jackie. Jackie's been one of those guys who's been through a lot during his coaching tenure, and he's one of the best basketball minds that I know, whether people know it or not. I'm going to go ahead and put that out there. Jackie's a great basketball mind, and he'll be a great head coach very soon. And uh, I'm just glad to see him back behind that bench helping out with the players. You know, I think it's kind of an, an an understatement almost because I've seen so many people, including Coach Williams, sing Jackie's praises as, you know, how incredible he is, especially being a lockdown defender. So um, I, I agree. I'm, I'm excited to see him kind of excel in this role and grow as not only, you know, a player or player's coach, but just someone who can really, you know, change Carolina to being, you know, the force that it used to be. I know you're incredibly competitive. So whenever you go back to Carolina during the summer, I know they have blue and white games where, you know, they mix up the players on the different sides. Do you give any players any lead way or are you giving them 110% of you and knocking them all down? Like, are you, is it no, just full out, Jawad? Yeah, they get 100% <laughs> and some. Um, I don't, once we step inside those lines, I don't care if I know you or not. Like, you know, I played against David on a professional label. I played against Jackie on a professional level. I played against a lot of former Carolina guys. But once we step inside those lines, I don't know you. Like, for 40 minutes, I really don't know you. <laughs> like, I'm going to foul you hard, and I'm going to elbow you. I'm going to play you like I would play against anybody else. And when I step into those court, I gave – I'm rehabbing right now, but I'll be back on the court in two weeks. So there's two particular players that I gave them a two-week warning. <laughs> that when I get back, a lot of things are going to change for you. So you better get ready. You know, and I like that. That I like when some of the guys come back at me and, you know, we can have these friendly back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had that relationship with Theo Penson. And I feel like it. the biggest thing is those young guys keep me sharp and I get to yeah. teach them. Yeah. So I get to destroy them and pick up games and kill them and talk crazy to them. But it also keeping me sharp at the same time. Right. So uh, those two guys that are on 
on watch right now are Anthony Harris and Leaky Black. Those two guys are on my list. And then uh, I'm going to add some more guys to that list as the season go on. But I'm going to run through them first and, you know, let everybody else know what's really going on. Because last year they dodged the bullet because of COVID. So this year there's no ducking. So was there a player um, that, you know, was like that towards you? Was there any player who came back during the summer and was that hard on you? For sure. Shaman Williams. Shaman Williams was a problem for everybody when he walked into that gym. He was a great mentor. But inside the line, Shaman did not care about our feelings. And uh, he would let us know about it. Uh, Brendan Haywood was another one. Uh, I mean, the list goes as long. Antoine Jameson, you know, a lot of those guys who we watched growing up, they came mm-hmm. back and they came back pretty often. Jerry Stackhouse. And when those guys came back, it was it was on. You know what I mean? There was there was no like, hey, little bro, it was none of that. It was it was beating you up, getting you ready to go out there and face the world. And that's what big brothers are for. So my very last question to you, Jawad, is who is your real sports hero? Sports hero, man. I probably got a couple. I'm gonna give you both. Uh, one is my older sister, Nishima Anderson, formerly Nishima Hellman, uh, played at Vanderbilt, was the 11th pick in the ABL. Uh, she retired early. She just lost her love for the game and retired early. Hurt my hurt my feelings. It still hurts me to this day that my sister retired so early. Uh, that's one. And then the other have to be Michael Jordan. I remember as a kid watching Channel Nine WGN in Cleveland, catching every Bulls game. So then when they showed the last dance, I seen all those games and I'm sitting there talking to my wife and my kids. I'm like, look, I remember I was here when that happened. So, you know, Michael Jordan's that other sports person that I looked up to a lot. One more question because you brought up your sister. She's the mother of your niece, the one that you post all the time, I believe, that plays from Michigan who's been doing crazy numbers. Like, I kind of want you to give me a little story on her because she's breaking records. Like, it's insane almost what she's doing. Yeah, that's my niece, Nas Hillman. Um, He falls in line of the women in my family who dominate basketball. My older sister, like I said, she was a Kodak All-American. My sister up under me, Saida Williams, played at UVA. She's been named a uh, ACC legend. We have another baby sister, um, Ajani Williams. Uh, then you got Nas Hillman, um, who's at Michigan now. She's been putting up numbers, like you said. Uh, it's funny because when she was around 12, she was just this tall, skinny girl with big feet. <laughs> and we joke about it now because now they're saying she's like one of the most athletic players in college basketball. And I sent her a message recently. I'm like, you remember you couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time? And she's like, yeah, I know. That's crazy. My feet were too big. So to see her out there, you know, scoring 50 points and leading her team in the NCAA tournament and all these things, it's, it's great to see. And uh, I'm pretty sure she has an even brighter future ahead of her. Well, I can only imagine a competition in your family, so... Thank you, Jawad, as always, for joining me on Real Sports Heroes. And that is it. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for listening to Real Sports Heroes. Subscribe to the podcast to ensure you're notified when the next episode drops. And please take a second to rate and review the show. We want as many people as possible to be able to engage with our real sports heroes. And your ratings and reviews help other people find our show. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.